if you're confused about your value proposition and where the product's headed, it's very tough to convince that to someone else, be that to an investor or to someone in the sales cycle. You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka. Now, if you're hearing this, it means you're not currently on our subscriber feed. To subscribe, go to getlatka.com. When you subscribe, you won't hear ads like this one. You'll get the full interviews. Right now, you're only hearing partial interviews. And you'll get interviews three weeks earlier from founders, thinkers, and people I find interesting. Like Eric Wan, 18 months before he took Zoom public. We got to grow faster, minimum is 100% over the past several years. Or bootstrap founders like Vivek of Question Pro. When I started the company, it was not cool to raise. Or Looker CEO Frank Bean before Google acquired his company for $2.6 billion. We want to see a real pervasive data culture, and then the rest flows behind that. If you'd like to subscribe, go to gitlatka.com. There, you'll find a private RSS feed that you can add to your favorite podcast listening tool, along with other subscriber-only content. Now look, I never want money to be the reason you can't listen to episodes. On the checkout page, you'll see an option to request free access. I grant 100% of those requests, no questions asked. Hey folks, my guest today is Kunal Lunovet. He's building a company called Agia Ventures. It's helping, it's, he's built the fund to invest in the future of the built world. Kunal, you ready to take us to the top? Awesome. Thanks for having me over, Nathan. You bet. Thanks for coming on. So just to be clear, this is not a SaaS company. You're building a fund, correct? That's right. It's an early stage VC fund. Okay. And are you investing in any SaaS companies focused on this space or no? Right. Uh, so we're investing in seed and series A stage companies focused on real estate. A part of that could be SaaS business models that we'd look at. And have you deployed any capital to date in SaaS companies focused on real estate? Correct. Uh, we made five investments so far and two of, two of them are SaaS companies. Great. Tell me more about the fund. Did you come as an, you know, were you an operator you sold and then you, you launched the fund or you have always been sort of on the fund side? Uh, no, it's been it's been an interesting journey at the, uh, to this point, Nathan. Um, so I grew up in India. My dad's a first time entrepreneur. He's a real estate developer back in India. So kind of grew up in that environment. Uh, came stateside for college, and then my first job out of college was at Blackstone Real Estate. Um, so made a bunch of real estate private equity investments there across different asset classes. Uh, went to business school after that. At that point, I got more interested in product and tech. Uh, then helped out a couple of friends with their prop tech companies. And then eventually, um, by happenstance, I, I got a call by a Japanese real estate developer to help them run their corporate venture capital arm based out of Tokyo. They were looking to do more things in the US. Uh, mm-hmm. This was in 2019. Um, so I went, visited Tokyo, spoke to this company, and kind of got connected with two more institutions. And they wanted me to do the same thing, which is help their CVCs gain more exposure to US-based prop tech. Uh, so at that point, I kind of built out this uh, consulting business, which is the first iteration of Akia Ventures. Um, as the business kind of kept growing, um, at that point, I convinced my now co-founder uh, and GP in the fund, Nobu, who was my classmate uh, in business school to join the team. Uh, so we kept on building the consulting side of the business. And last year, we went back to some of our Japanese institutional clients and they participated as LPs in the fund. Um, so kind of fast forward to today, we spend, I would say, 75 to 80% of our time as a team on the fund side and the remaining 20% of our time on the consulting side. 
How large is the consulting business? What was revenue in 2020 just on that that part of the company? Uh, it was a little less than half a million dollars. Okay, got it. So it's really more of an excuse for you to get connected to these folks while you focus on the fund. Exactly. Interesting. Now, did you and your partner split? Were you friendly? Did you just split carry 50-50? Or how do, you, how do you do that? When you launch a fund, how do you talk about carry splits? Sure. Um, so it's, um, you know, there, there are a few things that you need to bear in mind. It's the, uh, it's the amount of work that's already been put in. Um, it's the experience in the background that you're bringing to the table. Um, and it's the opportunity cost of each founder uh, for kind of, you know, leaving their existing jobs to start something like this. Uh, bear in mind that the you know the the CAD interest for fund one may not be the same as that for fund two because by the time you're looking at fund two it's more 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 of an established vehicle so you know the economics might change at that point. So how much did you guys raise for fund one? Uh, we're still raising, so we are not allowed to disclose. Uh, but we're looking at a forty-five to fifty million dollar fund uh, ballpark. We have fifty percent of the way there. And are you selling sort of the you know tune twenty model? You're selling sort of forty five percent IRR. Is there a fixed hurdle or something unique about it? It is a two and twenty model, um, and um, it's pretty market standard from that perspective. Okay, let's talk more about now. Let me understand a fund structure. Let's talk more about real estate. And there's a lot of folks saying you know obviously the Fed is printing money. Actually, most world banks are now printing money like crazy, and you've got large private equity firms like Blackstone actually sort of buying up the American dream, storing money in real estate. Many people are saying for the consumer. Owning a home is dead. Prices are too high because these funds are bidding it up. You have some experience here. Is the American dream dead owning a home? Uh, well, what we see is actually quite the opposite. Um, last year, um, you know, was uh, the best year for residential home sales in 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 the last fifteen odd years or so. Uh, mortgage rates are at an all time low. Um, there is some concern that you know institutional buyers are crowding out the individual homeowner. Uh, but all said and done, we still think that you know there's space for everyone to operate, uh, and we're seeing home ownership levels go up. You quoted residential home sales, but how do you split out the buyers of those residential homes into cohorts, consumers like you and I versus big funds, institutional funds buying it? Isn't isn't that a bad proxy to use just pure residential home sales? True, that's a good point. Um, and really, if you want to slice and dice it more, Nathan, you know, there's the individual homeowner. Uh, that's buying a home for the first time. There's an individual homeowner that's buying a vacation rental or a second time home as a rental property. And then among the funds, you've got the you know small to mid-sized funds that are buying anywhere between 20 to 100 assets. And then you've got you know the large private equity funds that are buying 10,000 assets at a time. Um, mm-hmm. So you've got the whole spectrum. Uh, there are certain markets for sure where the large private equity funds are buying you know thousands of assets and that's crowding out the market. But uh, even then, if you look at like the total volume of residential sales across the U.S., that's still a fraction of the total market. Mm-hmm. So to say that you know large real estate private funds are kind of dominating the U.S. home residential market, I think would be factually incorrect. Do you believe we're in an inflationary environment with so much money floating around, and you're, that's why we're seeing these crazy asset prices? Uh, I do believe that you're seeing some indications of inflationary trends, uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, from a macro perspective. Uh, you've never seen anything like this before. Uh, the rate at which the Fed's printed money, interest rates at an all-time low. Uh, so there's something to be said about maybe this is the new normal. Yep. Interesting. Okay. How is all of this funding a, a thesis, a core belief you have about property? And then how is that determining and how is that guiding you in terms of where are you playing capital in the prop tech companies? Um, I think you know last year uh, was kind of a watershed year for us in prop tech. Uh, some of the trends that we've been looking at kind of got accelerated by more than 10 years. Um, and to give you a sense, you know, we divide real estate across a few different asset classes. 
so when you look at office, uh, this whole trend around healthy buildings and technology promoting healthy buildings has been accelerated. Um, when you look at you know uh, residential, um, the one one underlying theme that we are backing pretty strongly is community and having a sense of community in multifamily properties and any technology that kind of promotes that. Um, when you look at hospitality, um, I mean, the hotel sector was really badly hit. Um, you had occupancy levels at all time lows across major markets in the US. Um, and usually it's during those points where the propensity to adopt technology is at an all time high among property managers and hotel owners and operators. Um, if you look at retail, brick and mortar retail almost um, you know, was again struggling. Um, so anything that brings people back to malls and makes it more experiential and technology that drives it is something we are bullish on. Uh, on the flip side of retail struggling, Nathan, was e-commerce was on fire. Uh, and as a result, you know, you barely had any spaces in warehouses. So we had warehouse owners and operators come to us asking us for technology product uh, that would make these warehouses more efficient. So that's, that's what we've been looking at, you know, across the five to six different asset classes in real estate. Have you made a bet there in the, and specifically in the warehouse space, making it more efficient? And if so, what was the company you wrote a check into? Uh, we're actively looking at the space. We haven't made a bet yet. Okay. Where have you placed bets? You've written five checks, I think. Sure. Um, so we've invested in the hospitality space. Um, we've invested uh, in the senior living space. Uh, we've written two checks in the residential space. Uh, and then we've written one check in the retail space. Can, can you share any of these public already? Can you share the story of these companies and what they're doing? Sure, uh, we can share. Um, uh, we can share four of the five. Okay, um, let's. So, uh, can you share the senior living one? Yeah, sure. Um, so actually, that's the one that's uh, that's on the stealth. So okay. okay. What about was about the, one of the residential checks? One of the one of the two checks there. Yeah, uh, happy to talk about both of them. So one of the companies was uh, the name of the company is Rumor R U U M R. Um, great founder story. The founder's name is Jordan Allen. He was previously the founder of this company called Stay Alfred, which was a short-term rental company, scaled it to $100 million in revenue, and then the business shut down during the pandemic, and he had to stop the business. Um, so this is his second rodeo, and what's, what's really interesting and fascinating is um, each one of his competitors in the business invested in the new company that he started, which goes on to show the command that he respects in the business. Right, uh, his new company is predicated around bringing more transparency in the home sales process, and the way he's doing that is by building a bidding platform where you, as a seller, can put your property for sale, and as buyers, you can bid on the property and you can see for live, uh, you know, where the property is currently at and what's the latest bid. And what what that kind of solves for is a lack of transparency in the home sales process, and second, you know. If you're a home buyer and if you've set your eyes on your dream home and you're bidding, say, $250,000, and then your broker comes back and tells you that, hey, we lost the property by two, $2,500, you don't want to be in that situation, right? So this bidding, bidding platform kind of solves for that. Uh, so that's a company that we recently invested in. And what was the check size there? Uh, we wrote a $250,000 check in that company. And that was a traditional sort of seed or Series A? Uh, that was a seed stage safe note. Seed stage save. Okay, got it. Were you guys the lead there? Were you the only investor? Uh, we weren't the lead there. Uh, there okay. were a bunch of other investors, uh, pretty high profile names as well. Um, one of them was Adam Newman, the former founder of WeWork. Yeah. Is that, I'm trying to think after the, after the documentary came out, is that a good check to have on the cap table or a bad check to have on the cap table? Um, so I would not, uh, you know, opine much on how WeWork was run as a business. 
Um, but the fact is that um, if you think about a prop tech business that's been scaled faster than anything, um, there, there are few proof points on WeWork. If you think about a category being created in the office space, I mean, co-working as a concept was introduced and made global by WeWork. So to have you know, those insights in terms of how to make a business go global and how to scale something that fast, I think there are fewer people better positioned to do that than the current team that we have at the gap table. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the hit there on WeWork would be anyone can raise $20.6 billion, spend $10 billion and have a company worth $10 billion at the end or less. Um, you know, to your point, what you're basically saying is by getting on the cap table, you get all the lessons learned from spending $20.6 billion in the category and hopefully save some money yourself at Rumor. Um, I'd, I'd have a more positive spin towards that, which is not everyone in the world can raise $20 billion. So you find me five people and I'll speak to all five of them. Totally, totally understand. But I just have to, I mean, WeWork is worth $8.5 billion today market cap, right? They raised 20.6 billion. That basically Adam has lost more money than any other founder almost on earth over the past decade. Uh, to your point though, obviously a lot of learnings there as well. I'm only putting that out because one of the themes on the show is like, we don't, we don't advocate people always going out and trying to raise capital at all costs. And WeWork is probably an example of one of the most egregious. I mean, Adams is a great storyteller. He raised like crazy SoftBank pushed the raise, obviously, but ultimately didn't create value in terms of market capitalization. But again, highly strategic, makes sense why you guys uh, obviously did that deal with him and makes sense why a lot of prop tech folks want him on the cap table. So totally understand that. Um, what about the hospitality space? Can you tell us the story there? Sure. Um, so we invest in this company called Stay Flexi. Um, it came out of Y Combinator's last cohort. Um, they're building the modern OS for hotel owners and operators. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, really to think about it is, you know, the initial wedge, the foot in the door for them is allow flexible check-in and check-outs. Uh, so Nathan, you may have gone to a hotel room, you know, you, your flight may have landed early and you wanted to check in at 9 a.m., but you can you could only check in like post 2 p.m. And then you wanted to say check out late, but you had to check out by 11 a.m. So what StayFlexi is solving for is essentially at the point of sale when you're making a reservation, you get to select the hour that you can you want to check in. So it could be 9 a.m., 9.30 a.m., 10 a.m. And then you also get to check out the hour that you want to check out. It could be 3 p.m., 3.30 p.m., and 4 p.m. Um, turns out to actually have this flexibility is a pretty complex problem at the back end. So they're building software and product for the property managers to kind of still run the ops of the hotel business while solving for this in the front end. Isn't the harder part in that two-sided marketplace not lining up the, the the hospitality folks, but actually getting consumers to use you to book the reservation over Hotel Tonight, Expedia, and all the other hundreds of folks in the space? Excellent question. So that's exactly what they're working on now, which is to integrate this product with the leading OTAs. So if I you see. go to an Airbnb or Booking.com or Expedia, you would have that option to book by the R. I see. So will Stay Flexi be in the background? It will be more of an API running on the back end, or will you see powered by Stay Flexi on, on Airbnb? They're still trying to figure out both strategies. Interesting. So, so how do you work with founders? You write the seed check. I mean, do you get active in product discussions with these founders, or you just sort of write the check and move on? Uh, we love to get active with the founders. So just with the case of Stay Flexi, one of the things we've been focused on is the go-to-market strategy. Uh, we've been having daily calls with the founding team. Um, we are looking at bringing on board a couple of pretty senior advisors from the hospitality industry um, because I think you know there's a lot of progress that we've made on the software and product side. Now we want to understand the nuances of the industry and make sure that we are also focused on the top line and the product market fit. Um, so that's that's been a lot of things we've been doing. 
Uh, we've been helping them with hiring. Uh, we're looking to get on board a VP of sales for the team, and we've been interviewing candidates along with the CEO. Um, and also, this depends on you know how much the portfolio companies want us to get involved. Um, you know, there's some times where the founder wants to check in once a week, and that's fine by us. There are times when the founder wants to check in once a month, and that's also fine by us. Our role is to be available and to be cognizant of what the founder might need and be prepared when he or she reaches out. Let's talk about the flip side. There's a lot of founders listening right now thinking, maybe I want to go raise my seed round, but I don't want to make mistakes. What's the biggest mistake you see founders make when they're pitching you to write their seed check? Um, the, the biggest thing we've come across, Nathan, is not having focus or clarity of um, being able to communicate what the value proposition is. If you're, not, if you're confused about your value proposition and where the product's headed, it's very tough to convince that to someone else, be that to an investor or to someone in the sales cycle. Uh, and what that also tells me is, you know, getting to that level of clarity, which is, you know, being brief and concise and punchy actually requires a lot of work. It requires you to have had made like a bunch of iterations with the product and with your pitch. Uh, so if you're coming in with a brief, concise, punchy pitch, that tells me that you've put in a lot of thought and effort and work towards this. Mm-hmm. The flip side to that is a genius engineer that is that is product engineered his or her way to growth, but can't market herself or shit, but they've got incredible traction metrics. What about a founder like that? Um, great question. Um, and you do account for that, right? Uh, I mean, on one hand, you want to have a great salesman or saleswoman making the pitch. Uh, on the other hand, you also want to look at the metrics and sometimes the metrics speak for themselves. Uh, what you know what what we would also often advocate is, um, if you do come across, you know, founding teams such as that, where it's like a one-side, a unidimensional founding team, um, at the outset, we would encourage them to kind of build out the team in a more holistic manner uh, if yeah. we were to invest in that company. So if yeah. you have an engineer, you want to bring on the sales capacity. Very cool. Kunal, this is good stuff. If people want to learn more about you and the fund, where can they find you online? Uh, it's agyaventures.com. That's A-G-Y-A ventures.com. Guys, there you go. Again, a lot of SaaS companies, they start off as an agency, they pivot into SaaS, they take success. It sounds like VC firms also sometimes start as consultants or agencies. They're doing 500,000 bucks a year in consulting in the prop tech space, now raising their first $45 million fund. Uh, More than, we'll call it maybe flirting with about halfway there, but already writing checks into hospitality space, senior living, residential, and uh, anything related really prop tech there. Kunal, I appreciate you taking us to the top. Thanks, Nathan. Bye.